News, politics, and special guests with a Texas twist. That's the goal of the Luke Macias Show. Our nation and state are at a crossroads, and if you're not informed, you're not equipped to make the change that our community needs. Join the conversation and join the cause for liberty today. Welcome to episode 19 of the Luke Messiah Show. Today's episode is our longest conversation yet, so I will make this introduction quick. Um, during the legislative session, there was a debate that broke out between abolitionists and what most people call incrementalists. During the course of our discussion, we ended up um, deciding upon, both both Thomas and Brad decided upon the term gradualist. So a gradualist approach to abortion and an abolitionist approach to abortion. And so um, today's discussion is between Thomas Umstead, who is a gradualist. He is somebody who's been involved in the life issue for a long uh, time. He's been involved in many different ways, uh, Bound for Life, which was kind of a pro-life activist group in the Austin area, the Austin Coalition for Life, doing prayer outside of abortion clinics. He was on the board of Texas Alliance for Life for some time. Um, he did make it clear that he didn't speak on behalf of any of those individual groups, but those are kind of his affiliations and who, where he comes to this discussion um, from. And then Brad Pierce, who is the head of abolition uh, of the abolitionists in Texas, Abolish Abortion Texas, I think is the official name of the organization. So we'll put some links in our blog post um, to uh, their different websites and things like that so you can know who these gentlemen are that are in the discussion. But I asked both of them to come and discuss the different perspectives that exist within the movement of individuals who would like to see abolish and, uh, or sorry, see abortion ended in our nation and our state. Um, so enjoy the conversation. I think it's an important conversation to have. I think it's important for pro-life Texans to know the different perspectives that are out there. And um, again, and, and towards the end, I, I take time to just encourage everybody to be further engaged in the issues of life and preserving innocent life um, and ending abortion. So thank you so much for joining us today. And I hope you enjoy the discussion that we had with Thomas Umstead and Brad Pierce. Guys, our sponsor for today's show is Patriot Academy, patriotacademy.com. You have heard me talk about this organization, but um, this truly is, for many students, a life-altering event. Um, I cannot tell you how many 16, 17, 18, 20, 25 year olds that have gone to this leadership program and come out with a, an entirely new direction for their life. You can go to patriotacademy.com to find out where they do these events, but essentially they take these students and they go through a week of being a legislator. They actually debate in the in the Texas House of Representatives, in the uh, Delaware House of Representatives, Idaho House of Representatives. It's an incredible experience. I have been involved with them. I believe in what they do. In fact, if you contact them and tell them that you heard about them through the Luke Macias show, I will contribute toward your uh, fee of actually attending. If you know a student that needs to go, that needs direction for their life, they're going to have an opportunity to learn about worldview, about free market economics, about the values that hold society together, and they're going to have an opportunity to be equipped to be a part of making the change that our community, our state, our nation need. So patriotacademy.com, we're grateful for their willingness to sponsor this podcast, and we also want to encourage each and every one of you to check them out. Please do so today. Welcome to episode 19 of the Luke Messiah Show. I have with me two uh, gentlemen, Thomas Umstead and Brad Pierce. They have joined us to have a conversation about abolition 
or incrementalism, two different perspectives that exist within the pro-life movement or the movement to end abortion or the movement to stop abortion, or that will be the discussion that we have today. Who's doing what and what do we want to do? But um, the goal of today is that, you know, this was spurred. Um, many Texans know that Tony Tinderholt filed legislation to abolish abortion in Texas, and that legislation had a hearing. It was a bit historic because there had not been a hearing in the Texas legislature, I guess, Brad, you'd be able to tell me, but ever? Ever, as far as I know. From 1973, so there's never been a bill just to say we want to abolish abortion here in Texas. And uh, so that, of course, got a lot of media attention. And then we have these different states like Georgia and Missouri and Alabama and Mm. Kentucky and Louisiana taking different larger steps, some incremental, like a heartbeat bill, some that say uh, abortion should be abolished, and Brad might have some perspectives on those. But at the end of the day, it's a discussion that really hasn't been had. I mean, the last four, six, eight years, um, as we've been debating these different issues, um, we've talked about abortion being murder. We've talked about the desire to see less and less. Um, But I think these two different worldviews and perspectives are starting to come to the surface. And I think it'd be a good opportunity for Texans to hear um, what brings different people to this table from a different perspective, one being an incremental approach and one being a complete abolishment. And so I asked two people I felt like could give a fair representation of both perspectives in Thomas and Brad, and hopefully y'all feel um, like this is a fair conversation. I'll tell you, I probably, um, I don't know where exactly I land on this discussion, but put me a little bit more in the abolition camp than the incremental camp, but I think abolitionists would probably say I'm not an abolitionist, so I don't know what that means, and I guess we'll find out more of that during this discussion. Um, To start, Thomas, why don't you start us off by just giving us your background and uh, give our listeners a little bit of context to your perspective in this conversation. Yeah, so I grew up in the pro-life movement. My dad was one of the early board members for what at the time was called the Austin Crisis Pregnancy Center. It was the only crisis pregnancy center in town back Mm. when Austin had two buggies and a stoplight (laughs) back in the olden days. And um, when I was in college, I got more involved. And uh, over the years, I've had a chance to be in basically every different part of the pro-life movement. So I kind of break the pro-life movement into three different groups. There's uh, crisis interventions like sidewalk training, um, praying in front of abortion clinics. And I was on the leadership team uh, with Austin uh, Coalition for Life. So organizing the 40 Days for Life campaign. And uh, back in those days, we had four abortion clinics in Austin that we were trying to get volunteers at, which mm-hmm. was quite an undertaking. Uh, and then I was on the board for um, a couple of different crisis pregnancy centers. So I, I call that crisis management. So it's kind of like once you reach the woman at the crisis pregnancy center or at the abortion facility and she's changing her mind, then what do you do, right? You get her in front of a sonogram. You try to change her mind there uh, and then walk with her through uh, the next season of her life as she uh, hopefully choose life and then, you know, raises the baby, right? You don't want to leave the woman uh, at the hospital, so to speak. And then also uh, I was on the board for a while with the Texas Alliance for Life. So I'd call that crisis prevention, kind of trying to end the problem, kind of stop the bleeding, so to speak. So kind of hitting it at, at multiple different levels. And then I also ran Austin Bound for Life, which is just a Protestant prayer movement uh, mm-hmm. connected with Lou Engle, I don't know if y'all are familiar with Bound for Life, but we're the ones who put red tape on our mouths. <laughs> so yep. if you've ever seen somebody with red tape over their mouth, there is a good chance that me or one of my uh, team handed them that that, uh, that red hmm. tape and 
uh, wrote life on it. I also helped coordinate uh, for HB2 uh, the grassroots um, movement. So after the bill failed the first time, I set up a conference call with all the different pro-life groups and, uh, that we could get, and we told them to bring in all the pro-life groups that they could get. And we had, I don't know, 20 or 30 pro-life groups on a conference call, and we coordinated. Uh, so like, if you see pro-lifers wearing blue, it was that conference call where we decided what color was going to be our color, because we had all the different colors. Uh, before that, and uh, what our hashtag was going to be, and we were, what live events. It was it was all very basic blocking and tackling, but it's fun to see now, years later, pro-lifers still wear blue. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was totally uh, like how we came to that decision. It just happened, right? We all had to agree on a color, and somebody said Texas blue, and that was too patriotic for anyone to say no. Mm -hmm. So that's the official color of the pro-life movement. So that's been my uh, involvement, although I will say, um, since getting married and having a baby, I'm no longer actively active so i'm not a part mm -hmm. of any groups at the moment i kind of took a step back to spend time with my family so got it got i don't it. officially represent any of the groups i <laughs> just not mentioned speak on behalf of anybody <laughs> brad why don't you give us kind of your background what brings you here sure well i know the same applies to thomas here the most important thing about me is that i'm a christian and um i'm a, a husband and a father just like thomas and my wife and i are grateful to have um, seven children eight including one that we lost in a miscarriage um, I'm an attorney, been practicing for 12 years. I'm a conservative, like I know we all are here. Uh, when it comes to abortion, I'm pro-life in the sense that, the basic sense that I'm for life, mm -hmm. but I'm an abolitionist in terms of what I think we should actually do about it, mm -hmm. do about protecting that life. Uh, I'm the executive director of Abolish Abortion Texas. We have about 90,000 members. Um, at this point, you know, how I kind of got into this, uh, I was raised in Texas, born and raised, uh, grew up in the Houston area. My mom was involved in the Republican Party, pro-life. I've been pro-life from conception, I like to say, um, but uh, but I'm no longer just pro-life, mm -hmm. is what I say. Uh, you know, I over time, as I've seen the way that we've approached this as a state, I just got a, kind of a bad taste in my mouth about you know, wider hallways, surgical center standards, uh, proximity to hospitals, things, those kind of bills that I know we'll kind of get more into. Um, but uh, about four years ago, you know, this kind of sets up how I, how I got into this. Uh, about four years ago, a friend of mine um, who's involved in politics went around to the various pro-life organizations, major pro-life organizations, and he said, um, hey, sat down with each of them separately and said, hey, if someone introduced a bill to just completely outlaw this thing, just completely outlaw abortion, what would your position on that be? And he got the exact same response everywhere he went, and that is not only would we not support a bill like that, we would actually oppose a bill like that. And again, I was already you know, discontent with the way that we were handling it before, but when I heard that, that is kind of what sparked in me that um, okay, there needs to be a, there needs to be someone doing that mm. because no one else is doing that. In fact, they're going to be opposing that. Um, so that's a little bit of my background. Got it. So to start this conversation out, because I think most people I talk to, when you say abolition versus incrementalism, um, they don't really know what you're talking about, right? They're going, "Yes, I'm an abolitionist." Well, we also want to incrementally do it. I'm for that too. And you're like, "Okay, well." So I think most pro-lifers would have a hard time knowing which camp they're in. So um, to start the conversation out, I want to kind of give you my sense of what these two words mean, and give you both an opportunity to either agree to those definitions or tweak them and see if we can't come to an understanding of of what these terms mean. So the way I look at um, incrementalism. And, uh, we all know that there's also different groups and 
organizations within the incremental movement on how they would do incrementalism, but it's generally a belief that the way to dismantle Roe v. Wade, the way to end abortion, the way to uh, cease abortion to exist is to take small steps one by one that undermine the ruling that Roe v. Wade made and give unborn children more and more rights. And then through giving them more rights incrementally, we will potentially eventually get to the point to where they are recognized as a human being. And the abolition movement is an organization that says that they don't have rights um, and currently under, they, they, they do have rights based on being a, a human being, right? And currently in law, we are not recognizing that. And that's a failure of law. We should recognize that purely, treat them the same as everybody else, come what may, come a Supreme Court ruling, but also that when you regulate abortions, when you say that an abortion after 20 weeks is not okay, you're also saying that abortion under 20 weeks is okay. So you're making a statement, in a sense, in support of those uh, abortions, which if we say they're murder, then that's a problem from an ethical standpoint. Do those, is that generally agreed upon? I mean, Thomas, what do you think? It, I'm just curious to hear Brad's definition of abolition. So I'm going to kick this to you first because I'm <laughs> genuinely oh, curious. Right, <laughs> well, I mean, I'll, I'll try to define both terms as I understand them. Um, it may be a, a lot of what you said that, you know, I would agree with some of it. I may, you know, mm -hmm. may make a little more specific, uh, you know, as far as, first of all, we're all incremental in, in different ways, mm -hmm. right? Everybody, no one believes that abortion is going to end tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and all of our paths to ending abortion are step by step by step by step, right? So in one sense, we're all incrementalists. You know, the, in that we all have steps to get from point A to point B. Mm -hmm. um, so that's why I, I often steer away from that term okay. because it's not as precise as I like. Because, again, we're all taking increments one step at a time. Is there a, a um, different term you'd prefer The term use? that I normally use is regulationism. Okay. And that is that, you know, that, you know, do we regulate abortion to death or do we abolish it? You know, that's kind of the way that we... You, know, you may approach it, you know, do we regulate it like healthcare or like a business and we slowly choke it out through those means or do we call it what it is, a crime and a sin, and we say, well, you need to abolish crime. So uh, so define abolitionist in, in your deal. Yeah, so, asked. you know, well, I'm going to define regulationist first. Okay. Um, and that is, to me, the regulations position, or often called incrementalist, is we're going to comply with Roe versus Wade while we seek to undermine it while taking all the ground that the Supreme Court will let us take. That's really the incremental position. And again, like you said, there's various pro-life organizations on that. Some are like, let's take small increments, and some are like, let's take really small increments. <laughs> um, but that, that's how I would say where they are. Okay. Um, abolitionists, um, you know, our position is to to treat Roe versus Wade as a legal nullity. That is, it does not have the force of law. It was illegitimate. It was not constitutional. It was anti-constitutional. It was evil. Um, it's of no effect. It's outside the jurisdiction of the court. And so therefore, it has no, because it has no effect, here in Texas, we should pass laws that outlaw abortion and treat it equal with the murder 
uh, or you know any form of homicide of any other individual, of any other person, um, because born people are just as valuable as people who have yet to be born, and so they need to be treated the same way. Got it. Mr. Armstead. So <clears throat> I personally don't use the word incrementalism. I like to use the word gradualism because it's got more of a historic root. So uh, if we're going to use the... I don't know what our, our debate title is going to be. It's going to be like abolition <laughs> versus regulatory, incremental, marginalist, gradualist. I, I think that's an appropriate term. Okay, well, we'll just do that. Gradualism right. versus abortion. Uh, because abolition. this is uh, not a new debate. Yes. Uh, so the abolitionists versus the gradualists uh, go back in the United States you know, 100, 200 years. So if you look at the anti-slavery movement in the 1700s, it was one. It was run by pragmatic gradualists, people like John Adams and uh, Tom, uh, Franklin, and uh, Jefferson. Even occasionally would pass anti-slavery bills uh, here and there, um, and they made gradual gains. And a lot of states flipped in the late 1700s and early 1800s to become free states. And we went from all of the United States being slavery to uh, half of the United States, roughly, depending on how you count having slavery, and we did that through gradual means and by winning hearts and minds. And then in the 1830s, the uh, abolitionists took over the anti-slavery movement. The generation of Franklin and uh, Adams went away. Well, it's interesting, John Quincy Adams was never an abolitionist in that sense. He was always part of the older anti-slavery movement uh, in his approach. Um, but he was kind of a relic of an older time, the oldest of the founding fathers. And um, at, at that point, it's starting in 1830, all of the victories stopped. In fact, the uh, anti-slavery movement started having defeats rather than victories until ultimately you have the Civil War, uh, which was kind of what that approach leads to historically. Um, if you a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still, and uh, when words fail, you have to start using clubs, and that's really unfortunate. But even then, if your goal is equality, the Civil War didn't bring equality. While it ended slavery, it was such a violent, traumatic time that um, despite being free, there wasn't equality for another 100 years. No more gains were made, big gains for African Americans until uh, the 1850s. And so that approach, that all or nothing approach, uh, I don't find to be very effective. It, it's very gratifying. And I will say the abolition movement splintered into multiple different groups that were with each other. So there was one group in the 1830s, American Anti-Slavery Society, and then it broke, and then that group broke, and you, you know issues that had nothing to do with the issue, like should we include female members, uh, split one of the anti-slavery societies. I'm like, really? This is what y'all are splitting over? And yet, you know, it doesn't sound too different from the pro-life movement, where everyone's taking shots at each other rather than uh, taking shots at Planned Parenthood. So um, that's why I like to use the term gradualism, because that is the same language that was used 150 years ago during that earlier debate. Got it. So um, what I'm going to do is, uh, and, and some of it has come out already a little bit, but I want, Brad, for you to just take a couple minutes to talk about why you are an abolitionist, and then Thomas will go to you. I'm an abolitionist because I believe that from the moment of fertilization, a child is created equal. As our Declaration of Independence says, I believe as the Bible makes clear, um, and is worthy of equal protection under the law. And that's what abolitionist bills call for, is equal protection under the law. I also believe in following the Constitution. We're a government of laws and not of men. A government of men is a, you know, a monarchy or an oligarchy. 
um, where people, by their by their own whim or by their own opinion, decide what the law should be. But we're, that's not the country that we live in. We live in a government of laws, where everyone's, um, all of our leaders, all of our political leaders, swear an oath to the Constitution. Even me, as an attorney, I swore an oath to the Constitution. And I believe that that means something, and that we need to be following that. Um, and in this case, we abolitionism is the most consistent, most consistent to the Constitution. And that is, um, we believe that Roe versus Wade is unconstitutional. And so uh, we believe that the principles of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence uh, stand behind abolition. Uh, stand behind uh, equal protection and recognizing the equality of the freeborn, and so we need to be following the Constitution. Uh, the supremacy clause of the Constitution. Some people throw that out there that well, federal law trumps state law. Um, well, it says all laws made in pursuance of the Constitution are the supreme law of the land, and Roe versus Wade was not made in pursuance of the Constitution, so it's not constitutional. So it's of no legal effect. And one of the problems with you know, with writing bills that try to comply with Roe, yes, while undermine, while trying to undermine it, but ultimately to comply with it, um, is that we're legitimizing. We're, we're not only legitimizing that opinion, but we're also legitimizing the Supreme Court's undermining of the Constitution. We're, we're legitimizing the Supreme Court's violation of state sovereignty. We're legitimizing the Supreme Court's, um, you know, being a government of men and not of laws. Um, and so that's why we oppose that. We oppose any bills that do that. We oppose any bills that legitimize that opinion or, or um, the arbitrary nature of it. And we also oppose any bills that treat abortions as something less than a crime um, and treat the humanity of the preborn child as anything less than the humanity of everybody else. Mr. Hempstead, so, are you a gradualist? When God gave the children of Israel as they were exiting Egypt, the promised land, he gave them all of the promised land, right? From the Euphrates to the Mediterranean, uh, from uh, the southern desert, I forget its name, up to basically Turkey, right? This huge region. And yet, he gave it to them gradually. Uh, while, yes, all of it was given to them by God, uh, it was still up to them to be obedient and faithful to take it city by city and to do it uh, when God told them to do. So when you, when they decided to go in too soon, he didn't bless the army, right, and they all got slaughtered. And uh, they went up against Jericho, and he blessed them, and he gave them the city of Jericho. And then when they went up against the city of Ai, uh, you know, they didn't um, do it in the right way, and he didn't bless their efforts. But even so, they had to take it gradually. And even at the end of the book of Joshua, they don't have... Israel all the way to the Euphrates River, right? They, there was more to take. There was this gradual process, and God even explains why he did that, he, why he gave it to them gradually, and that's how life works. You do things one step at a time. Things don't happen all at once. Uh, it says in Proverbs, uh, wealth gained quickly is counted as a curse, but if you gather little by little, um, I don't remember the rest of the proverb, good things happen, right? Mm -hmm. It's better to make money slowly than it is to make money uh, quickly. And I think that there's an important principle there that uh, wisdom requires a certain level of uh, strategy, of, of doing things in an effective way and doing things in the right way. And yes, uh, you know, children are humans, right? Mm -hmm. From the moment of conception, 
uh, to natural death, and they should have uh, the protection of uh, the law just like any other human, uh, just like God had given the children of Israel all of the promised land. And, uh, but because, just because that's true doesn't mean that it has become fact yet. It, so yes, God had given uh, the children of Israel all of that land, but it didn't mean they had Jerusalem yet, right? They didn't get Jerusalem until mm-hmm. David took it. That's why it's the city of David. <laughs> he was in the middle of their own country. It's a town they hadn't taken yet. And finally, it came to David's generation to take Jerusalem, and it became you know, the capital city of the world, arguably, uh, to this very day. And I think it's important and for us to face the world as it is, and not how we want it to be. We get irritated when the left does this, when they kind of deny basic reality. And the reality is, is that the Supreme Court is um, the supreme court, right? They, if you violate the uh, Supreme Court, they have the le- legitimate power to put you in jail. And, and by legitimate, I mean in that uh, hierarchy of powers uh, sense. So there's the five levels of power. The lowest level of power is legitimate power. It's the ability to punish. And the Supreme Court has the ability to punish, and we can't just pretend that that's not the case. So, um, Brad, what are what are the problems you see when it comes to the gradualist approach? I mean, give me give me some more solid examples of when you think that actually can more clearly be seen as something that negatively affects sure. the pro-life cause. Yeah, well, I mean, I certainly agree with Thomas that things happen step by step, as I mentioned earlier. But you know, the the issue with the issue that comes down to are we compromising, right? As we take those steps, one step at a time, are we compromising? And and I have no problem with steps that don't compromise, but I do have problems with steps that do compromise, especially fundamental principles. Um, you know, I I don't think in the, what you described as the children of Israel, that there was any example of that, where they're compromising fundamental principles, whereas I would argue even the pro-life movement there is. Um, you know, specifically, let's, let's you know, take some specific examples here. Let's say we have a, um, you know, let's say we have a bill that says, um, for example, I'm just going to take the dismemberment ban. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm going to take the dismemberment ban from last session, which was, you know, arguably the most conservative pro-life bill passed last session. Uh, was ultimately stayed in court, and um, that's where it remains. Um, the dismemberment bill said that uh, babies could not be dismembered um, while they were still living, mm-hmm. um, but that they could be dismembered after they had already died. So, for example, it still left uh, the ability for abortion doctors to, you know, lethally inject, to cut the umbilical cord, to, pardon the graphic nature, you know, to cut the, the, an artery and let the baby bleed out, to, in the, the numerous ways, kill the baby first, and then could be ripped the baby into pieces. Um, you know, that's the kind of things that I have a problem with that I believe, you know, we believe are compromising principles. They're compromising the principle that this is a life. The other thing is the, you know, the penalty for doing that was very, very low. It wasn't homicide. It wasn't treated that way. Uh, Various people were accepted from that. Various, you know, other methods are accepted from that. Um, And ultimately we're, we're compromising the principle that uh, that this is a life and in fact whenever that case ultimately went up to the court and our attorney general's office was in there defending it 
they actually said this bill, or you know, plaintiffs have presented no evidence that this bill would stop a single abortion. Um, well, you know, that's what I have a problem with. You know, I have a problem with us saying we want to end abortion, but then the bills we pass compromise principles and ultimately don't actually end abortion so and, or even abortion. So let, let me uh, take, take it a couple other steps. Yeah. So when Georgia, when the state of Georgia passes a, a heartbeat bill that says that once there's a detectable heartbeat, an abortion cannot occur right? Any abortion after there's a detectable heartbeat is illegal in this state. And I don't know all of the technicalities of that law, whether it's treated the same, whether it has the same criminal penalty level. But that being said, in that piece of legislation in particular, if that goes into effect, and if next year, individuals that considered having abortions and killing those children at eight and nine and 10 and 11 and 12 weeks do not go, did that bill have a positive effect or negative effect? And what, where do you calculate the negative effects versus the positive effects and how it... Yeah, well, I mean, I think assuming it goes into effect, which is a giant assumption. Yep. Um, and I, I think very low probability. Um, now, now, real quick. So when you say assuming it goes into effect, are you saying assuming the courts <clears throat> let it go into effect? Right. Assuming they enforce it. Assuming that the state of Georgia chooses to enforce it. Okay. Whether it be over a court's objection or not. Okay. Now, that not that same issue exist within an abolition bill, too, correct? I mean, meaning... Meaning that it could be challenged in the courts? I mean, if, if, if five Republican... If Republican legislatures... A uh, Republican legislature decides to ban abortion, it's still up to the DA on whether he wants to prosecute, the governor on whether he wants to start or the attorney general on whether he wants to take these people to court, so... I'm saying, is that a particular issue with heartbeat, or is that an issue with any pro-life? Well, no, you have that issue with everything. Okay. Um, right. I mean, ultimately, you know, getting a bill passed is not the end of the story. Yeah. Right. It's you know, bills don't enforce themselves. You know, you have to have then law enforcement, prosecutors, judges, juries, yep. um, appellate courts, yep. all that would then be involved with enforcing those laws. Um, so, you know, I don't think anybody thinks that you know, getting a, even getting a bill passed in the legislature is going to be you know, the end of the story. Um, you know, in Georgia, you know, one of the problems with these bills, if, if you were to go to Georgia and ask them, you know, why did you pass a heartbeat bill and why not just pass a bill that just completely outlaws abortion, right? I think that the answer that you're going to get is, well, because we think the Supreme Court will uphold a heartbeat bill, mm-hmm. right? Like, th- I think they would tell you, I mean, we all, we agree that we want to totally outlaw it, but we don't think that the Supreme Court would uphold that because of Roe versus Wade, so we're going to pass this bill instead. We believe that that is legitimizing Roe versus Wade whenever you do that, and that's a problem. We don't think you should, you should be doing anything to legitimize Roe versus Wade. You know, on top of that, the heartbeat bill, we believe, denies the humanity of the children who don't yet have a heartbeat. You know, I believe that life begins with fertilization. The heartbeat bill also has problems for rape and incest. Uh, I'm sorry, has exceptions for rape and incest. Well, again, I don't believe that a child should be um, killed because of the consequences of their, because of the circumstances of their conception or because of the sins of their father, right? It's not their fault, um, but that's that's what the bill contains. And those are the kind of compromises that, you know, that are a problem. Um, one of the, uh, one of the things, and I think we probably could all all agree on this, but whenever the rape and incest situations are brought up, I mean, I think that it's always important to recognize the fact that 
um, a rape that results in the conception of another human being um, has one very uh, heinous criminal and has two victims, right? right? And so the reality is that it's important in those situations to recognize, one, the incredibly difficult position that everybody would be in in that situation and the reality that there are two victims created in this situation. So you have two uh, victims who are in no way uh, you know, guilty of a crime and you have one person who's guilty of a very heinous crime, um, a crime that should be prosecuted to the, the full extent of the law. Well, and I even saw a study just, just here in the last few weeks where it's, they did a study about women um, who had and or had not gotten abortions after a rape and the ones that had gotten abortion after rape almost universally regretted it, and the ones who had not almost universally were glad that they didn't. Now, Thomas, uh, I think we've talked about this before, but do you believe in rape and incest exceptions in law? Um, from a philosophical perspective, I completely agree. Right, It doesn't make sense to protect uh, a child or sorry, to punish a child for the sin of the father, right? That doesn't mm -hmm. make sense. Uh, that said, I wouldn't vote against a bill. Like if there was a pro-life bill in front of me that would reduce the number of abortions, mm -hmm. uh, I wouldn't vote against it just because it had a rape and incest provision. I'd yeah. take what I could get now, and then I'd come back next session to get rid of that rape and incest provision. Yeah. It's a lot easier to make a change to gains that you've already received than it is to try to eat the whole elephant in one bite. And, you know, two things can but be true. But if you were to, if you were to write a law, <clears throat> I mean, now that we know that laws have passed that don't have rape and incest exceptions, our 20-week ban in Texas doesn't have a rape or incest exception. And that has yet to be overruled by the, by the Supreme Court, right? So that is a good example of a time when it was right to push the envelope that far and not have those exceptions, which have not been overturned, correct? I mean, I'm just trying to get an idea. Yeah, I, I wouldn't put a rape and incest um, exception into a bill. Like, I wouldn't I wouldn't cede any ground uh, yeah. unnecessarily. And it's not the 20-week bill, it's the fetal pain bill. And this is a really key difference. So one of the advantages of gradualism is that as you make gradual gains, you win the hearts and minds of the population. And talking about fetal pain, that babies experience pain in the womb, talking about the fact that babies have heartbeats, educates people who are not well-educated about uh, babies in the womb. They think it's a blob of tissue. And then as these terms like fetal pain and heartbeat get used in the debate and they hear it on the news all of the time, it starts to change their understanding and their awareness, and it makes them more pro-life. And if you look at history, when we don't do this, the change, changes often don't stick. And a great example of this, if you go and if you look at the abolition movement, one of the things that those same people started working on uh, was prohibition. Right? They wanted to prohibit alcohol in the United States, and they actually got what they wanted. And in the negotiations of the language of the, of the bill, instead of what everyone thought they were going to do, which is to make uh, hard liquor illegal, they made the uh, limit 0.5%, which basically got rid of beer, it got rid of wine, and it shocked the whole country. But they got it in the Constitution, right? Alcohol is prohibited, and yet the result was alcohol consumption actually went up, not down, there was a huge boom and uh, crime, organized crime, and finally that was repealed, and it will never be tried again, right? Like they took, got their victory too early, and as a result, it is a like resounding defeat that will last for hundreds of years. Like no one is really trying uh, prohibition anymore. The women's temperance leagues are all gone. Like it was a, f 
uh, fundamental defeat. And that is a kind of fundamental defeat that the babies of America can't afford for us to have. We need to have strategic victories, and we need to take hills that we can hold long term. And yes, we gain hill after hill. We slowly move uh, that age earlier and earlier. We slowly make abortion more and more unthinkable until we win over the hearts and minds of the nation. And repentance takes time. It doesn't happen all at once. And as more and more people repent, as more and more people change their thinking and how they see abortion, we'll pass more pro-life bills. Pro-abortion organizations will make less money, which will make them less powerful. And that flywheel just keeps spinning and spinning and spinning, spinning until finally we're able to abolish abortion. And so in that sense, I'm absolutely an abolitionist. I want to get there. I just want to get there in a very strategic way. And, I, and, I, and two things can be true at the same time. It can be true that a baby with a heartbeat is a person and true that a baby without a heartbeat is a person. And saying, oh, we're protecting babies with heartbeats doesn't also say babies without heartbeats aren't people. Yeah, well, lot, lot to talk about there. Uh, you know, as far as the the um, prohibition movement, the abolition movement, you know, I, I think that we're talking apples and oranges there. You know, there's something very different between prohibiting a beverage and prohibiting murder. You know, we're, we're talking about two very, very different things. Um, you know, one of which I would oppose, right? I would oppose the prohibition movement, but I think that we should all support, you know, Abolition. I can drink to that. So. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers. Um, you know, the other thing, though, you talk about, you know, over time that, you know, we, we, we're educating people, right? When we talk about fetal pain bill or when we talk about the heartbeat bill or when we talk about um, whatever it may be, you know, dismemberment, right? We're letting people know this is some horrible way that babies are murdered over here. Um, the problem is we're also educating them the, the other way. We're also educating them falsely. We're educating them that um, abortions before that time are okay, right? You know, if you go stand outside an abortion bill, I know you have, um, that, you know, you'll hear that. You'll hear, you know, my baby's only this age or, you know, it's, it's, it's only this far along. It, hasn't, it can't feel pain yet or it doesn't have a heartbeat. You don't hear that one yet, but you will. Um, you know, they'll use it. I'm not saying it's going to be legitimate, but you're going to hear it. Um, you know, those are the sorts of things that you hear out there. You, or you also hear, you know, if it were wrong, it would be illegal. Um, all those things that, you know, people just putting on their own common sense, you know, when they hear, oh, they passed a 20-week ban, then they're hearing, oh, well, then it must not be important to protect this life before 20 weeks. Um, and those are the things that we don't believe in compromising on. You know, for example, you've, you know, we've talked about abolition of the slave trade or abolition of slavery. You know, I think it's an important discussion, important to, you know, know our history as, as you've talked about. Um, but, you know, we had, in, even in this state, back in 1857, there was when we had our very first official penal code here in this state, and this was before the Civil War, we had a law in this state that said that, uh, you know, per, Persons, uh, you know, that um, people of color, I believe was the term that it used, are persons, but they are, let's see here, a slave or free person of color, this is from Article 801, when tried for a penal offense, is in law a person, but his personal rights are to be controlled by the provisions of this part of the penal code and are subject to rules different from those which would be applied in the case of a free white person arising from the peculiar position of these classes of persons in society. Right, a gradualist at the time would say, hey, that's great, right? We're calling them persons. Whereas the abolitionists 
would say, that's not great. You just, you're writing into law that they get a completely different system of justice. You can call them persons all you want, but when you give them a completely different system of justice, you're not treating them like persons, right? So that, that's where we have a problem. And, and, you know, you mentioned repentance and that, yeah, repentance does take time. But repentance, you know, we don't come at, when, when you come at sin, you don't, you don't tell people to gradually leave their sin, right? You tell them to immediately leave their sin. You don't tell a man who's a serial adulterer to, hey, you know, commit adultery with fewer people or only do it between these hours or only do it in these places or make sure it's safe sex or make sure it's this. You go to them and you say, this is evil, this is wrong, you need to stop. Now, that person may, you know, repentance is immediate. They may still struggle with the sin. They may st- it may take time for them to get total victory over it, but the actual repentance is immediate, and the demand for the repentance or the call for the repentance is also for immediate repentance. And that's what we believe when it comes to abortion we don't need to call for, oh, repent of killing babies after 20 weeks, or repent of killing babies after heartbeat. No, it's repent, period, of not just of the actual act of abortion, but even of the act of abdicating um, our duty to protect those lives, which I believe we have done by submitting to an unconstitutional opinion of Roe versus Wade. We're abdicating our duties there. So, uh, in the book Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, C.S. Lewis uh, talks about how repentance, when we first do it, we don't do it very well. And as uh, God renews our minds, we do it better and better over time. Right? Like when you first come uh, to Christ, you know, to, you know, each of us have our own testimony, but for many people, it's a cry out of desperation. And there's a lot of things broken. There's a lot of areas of sin. And, you know, it's not like, gosh, man, when I came to Christ, he showed me every area of sin in my life, and then it was just a, a list, right? The longer you work, you walk with Christ, the more areas you find in your heart that need to be turned over, you know, that need to be sanctified, and it's it's a process, and it's a now, process. Thomas, are you saying that the longer you're a Christian, the closer you'll become to being an abolitionist, or are you talking about gradualism here? The, the process of sanctification yep. is a gradual process. Yeah. Um, and I don't, and I don't want to get too deep in the theology because I'll be the first to say I have no idea how that works, right? Uh, you know, if you die after you're only a Christian for a day, right? The process of sanctification has much had much chance to work, and yet uh, you are justified before the Lord, in, in my understanding. Um, but when it comes to like saving babies, which which is my goal, being in the pro life mm-hmm. movement, I, I'm not here because I want people to see me as a moral person who took a principled stand. I don't care what people think about me. Uh, my goal here is to save to save babies, and uh, I'm, as you know, a big fan of Roman history because I think it gives us a lot of uh, wisdom, both both in the sense of mistakes that they made, but also things that they did well. And there's this famous saying that Rome wasn't built in a day, and if you wonder why our ancestors, the Gauls, were beat by the Romans, despite the fact that we were bigger and stronger, <laughs> right? The Gauls of, of France and the the Britons uh, had bigger muscles and you know stronger and hordes, right? And yet these tiny Roman armies uh, would defeat them time and time again. You, ha- you have to ask yourself, how? How did Rome, how did these tiny Italians build themselves an empire that lasted for 2,000 years? And they did it by being very 
careful and by being very strategic. They picked battles that they could win. They went into areas when they were invited, right? So they didn't invade the Holy Land just out of nowhere. They were invited by one of the factions in a civil war. Uh, when they invaded Greece, they were invited by one of the factions in a civil war. And they invaded Gaul, they were invited. And they were able to take those moments of opportunity and seize them. And then once they took a, an area of land, they never gave it back, or they wouldn't for you know, generations and generations, right? 500 years later, somebody may have lost that land. Uh, but that uh, is, I think, the more effective strategy, to take land piece by piece, just like the children of Israel took the land. It's the same way with the Romans, and that is what works. That's what actually saves babies, and the results speak for themselves. You know, the abortion rates in the United States are dropping because of these gradual reforms that we're putting in. Those reforms are changing people's thinking. And yes, their thinking has not changed enough, and I would agree, right? Everyone needs to see uh, what babies really are, but I will take some saved babies over no saved babies, right? I want yep. less dead babies at the end of each year, and I want fewer dead babies the next year than I had this year. So... Um. I, I push back to Brad a little bit just with the idea of the Georgia heartbeat bill and the fact that you could theoretically a year or two from now see a lot of lives saved as a result of that. So to push back on the gradual approach, um, you know, Thomas, there are um, times that gradualists oppose gradualism, right? I mean, we have... Um, pro-life groups that oppose the dismemberment ban that Brad talked about because um, they weren't sure that's gone into effect and still law of the land. There are mm -hmm. um, many pro-life groups that have come out in opposition to heartbeat legislation publicly, you know, this time in Texas as well, um, because they're not sure that um, I know Kylene Wright and, and Alliance for Life and stuff on the heartbeat bill in, in particular. And, um, and so where, doesn't gradualism have its dangers in the idea that there are many laws today in Texas that were opposed by pro-life groups, but still got in and are still law of the land and are still saving babies. So is there kind of a, a, a an ability for gradualists to look back and go, I think, are, are we wrong every time a good pro-life law goes into effect and then it stays in effect? Do, do gradualists need to adjust their plans there? And does it also have its potential problems? So the question is how slow is too slow to kind of, to kind of summarize it. I do think that it is uh, possible to go too slow, right? Going back to the Rome analogy, Greece next door is having a civil war. And if you don't go in and leverage it, yep. Opportunities missed, right? And a strong, you know, emperor becomes emperor of Greece and suddenly we've got a, a strong yep. enemy where you could have had a new territory. Uh, the question is very uh, circumstantial, and you know it's hard. It's very easy looking back to be like, "Oh, that was a good move," or yep. "That was a bad move." And I didn't realize how costly defeats were in the courts until we had a victory. And I'll explain. I was on the board for Austin Life Care, which is one of the big uh, crisis pregnancy centers here in Austin, and they there was a city ordinance that they had to put a disclaimer on their door. Uh, by the People's Republic of Austin, Texas, saying that they did not, like basically apologizing that it was not an abortion facility. And it was this craziest, stupidest overreach by the Austin City Council. And uh, an organization that I was on, uh, on the, an advisor for, or, or helped with, the, the um, Texas, 
I'm blanking on their name right now. They're not around anymore, but they were basically a pro-life legal firm okay. run by Greg Terra, represented Life Care in suing the city of Austin. And once we finally won, because it was a crazy law, like, I mean, they way overreached. I realized what has been happening to Planned Parenthood every time they win one of these court cases. The heavens open up and money pours in because you get all of those lawyer fees refunded at full price. And you get the punitive damages and you get the monetary damages. And man, losing a, winning a court case against a government is the best because you can actually collect, right? You win a court case against some individual and they fly away to Tahiti or they declare bankruptcy and you get no money. You win a court case against a government, you get tons of money. And so this is why it's so tricky looking into the future because you want to win, right? You want these legislative victories. You want to follow them up with legal victories. But if you get a legislative victory and then you follow it up with a, leg with a legal defeat, not only does the legislative victory go away, but you're giving taxpayer money to Planned Parenthood. You're feeding the monster. And that is scary, right? But, but like I said, I'm, so, so I guess here's one way of saying it. If you look back and that law that you opposed is now law of the land and still standing at that point. Is that a determination that we were going too slow? Well, the law passed, right? So we're making progress. Okay. I'm saying we have pro-life groups that oppose bills out of concerns on the legal battle. And those, those laws are still law of the land years later. Right? So at what point, that's what I'm asking on a gradual perspective, okay. right? So, Do you look back, if two years after a law passes, it's still law of the land, was it then wrong to oppose it out of a concern of the legal mm -hmm. battle, right? And then then, th then you get into, now this would be a gradual debate, right? Gradualist versus gradualist, you get into a debate of how do you determine what how far is too far and how yeah, far it's, is Yeah, because it's, it's not linear. That's what I'm trying to ask you of. It, do you think there is a way to at least clearly decide, even looking back, whether something was a good position or a bad position. Let's do it from a 2020. Okay, so... Hindsight's 2020. In my understanding of the pro-life movement, every single pro-life bill that's passed in Texas has passed over the either active or passive opposition by other pro-life groups. So the presence of the abolitionists trying to destroy pro-life bills is not new. There have always been pro-life groups. And sometimes it's just petty jealousy, right? We want our version of the bill to pass, not your version of the bill, so we're not going to help you. And one of my big prayers for the pro-life movement is uh, unity. Because just like with the abolition movement, where they fractured and they went to war with each other and stopped freeing slaves, uh, the same thing is happening in the pro-life um, level. And it's not just in Texas. At first, I was like, oh, it's just the personalities, right? There's this one person and this other person in Texas, and they don't get along. But then I realized it's at the national level, too. And it's with crisis pregnancy centers. There are two rival alliances of crisis pregnancy centers that don't get along. I'm like, why? Of all the groups that should be able to get along, no problem, crisis pregnancy centers should be able to get along. And here in Austin, I can't speak for other cities, there are like different factions of pro-life groups and they'll have their gatherings and certain people aren't invited because you're not a part of the cool kids club. And one of the, my continual prayers for the pro-life movement is unity that God would bring us together. and that Because when we do accomplish our greatest victories, it's when more people are pulling in the same direction than pulling in the opposite direction. And uh, very often in a strategy meeting, it's not about how do we keep Planned Parenthood from killing the bill. It's how do we keep other pro-lifers from killing the bill. And um, 
looking back, yeah, if it was successful, it was the right call. And if it was a failure, it was the wrong call. That's easy, right? Okay. Uh, so, so, so I'm trying to establish, and I'll get into another thought in just a second, but like, I guess my point is if, if a gradualist opposes a bill that goes into effect still and then doesn't get overturned by the courts and the abortionists don't get their legal fees, at that point we can look back and go, wrong call, we should adjust for the next one. Now, the next one might also be the same concern because the next one might be pushing things further. So I'm saying, yeah, the future but at is least hard from, to a, see. But from a hindsight perspective, if it stands from a gradualist perspective, gradualists should all agree that that was a good step in the right direction. Now, what's the next step? Is that generally agreed upon? Yeah, sure. You take the city and you hold the city. It's your city now. So another thought I had was, and I, I think every uh, pro-lifers do this all the time, but one question would be is sometimes, and this gets to Brad's point, um, but also I'll, I'll push this on, on Brad too, because I think their position would be this too. I have seen different times that certain people will withhold support from certain legislation, right? Meaning we don't think this would be either far enough, or we don't know if this really does anything, or we think this is compromising on principle or whatever. So we're just gonna let this go. But we're not actively going and trying to kill those bills. And then there's other times where different people of pro-life backgrounds look at legislation and decide, I only want these to pass. And I actually want to oppose the other bills and tell people to vote against them. Is it okay for a pro-life individual to ever tell? And by the way, like I mean this because Brad, I think Brad's position is he would tell people to vote against a bill that is not an abolition bill. So is, do you both agree that pro-lifers should at times tell other pro-life individuals to vote against pro-life legislation? Do you agree on that? Or would you generally take the position? So, so Brad, I'll, I'll go that to you first and then Thomas. It depends. You know, I mean, I, I would differ with saying that, you know, I, I would always be against any bill that's not an abolition bill. You know, there can certainly be bills that are not completely outlawing abortion that I would agree with, right? Like the, um, the bill that said, hey, municipalities, counties, you can't make sweetheart deals with Planned Parenthood. Hey, I agree with that. Okay. I, I support that. I'm glad that that's becoming the law. They shouldn't be able to do that. You know, I believe with, I, I agree with defunding Planned Parenthood. And that's not an outlawing abortion bill, but it is a bill that, that absolutely we should pass. We should, and Got it. we can all agree. I think we all agree on that. Um, My it, tax dollars going to Planned Parenthood? I don't like that. Yeah, yeah. That good you, to me. All of me dislikes that. The libertarian in me dislikes <laughs> that. The pro-lifer dislikes that. The small government Republican dislikes that. That's right. So, so many things to dislike. So yeah, I'm, I'm not saying a bill has to be, yep. you know, HB 896, a session, you know, in order to be a bill that I would support. Uh, but it can't compromise. You know, it can't compromise principles. And it also can't be what I would call, you know, what I would call a fake bill, right? It can't be a bill that's just designed to look pro-life, uh, or look like it's doing something, so that way it makes all the pro-lifers think, hey, this is great, let's vote for this person again, but it actually doesn't really do anything. Mm-hmm. It, it's just redundant for, you know, it, that law's already there, or it's never going to be enforced, or it's just, in other words, it's just a gesture. Okay. You know, a gesture just to get votes, just to get money, just to make yourself look pro-life, but it doesn't actually do anything either to save babies or to end abortion. I'm going to oppose those kind of bills too. Mm-hmm. So bills of compromise principle... Bills that are, you know, fake and are designed to uh, make yourself look good without actually doing anything, which is one of politicians' favorite things to do. You know, I'm going to oppose those kind of bills. Or I'm at the very least going to call them for what they are. 
Um, even if I don't say vote against this bill, I think we should at least say, yeah, maybe, maybe you can vote for this bill. It's not doing anything bad, but you know, I hope nobody's going to go home and campaign on this in their district because this is pretty pathetic. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, there's certainly a lot of that going on. Go ahead, Thomas. So sometimes though, fake bills are Trojan horses. And uh, if you're not on the inside, it can be hard to know what is actually having a huge effect. And a good example of this was the bill that required abortion doctors to meet with abortion-minded women a day before the operation. Like, this is like, come on. Like, what a like, worthless bill, right? This isn't going to have any kind of impact. But one of the things that we learned from uh, abortion former abortion providers that had uh, crossed the uh, lines was that there's a shortage of abortion doctors nationwide, and there's a shortage in Texas. And one of the ways that they compensate for that is by having these abortion doctors go on a circuit where you have an abortion doctor who will go to six different abortion mills in a week providing abortions. And by forcing that abortion doctor to do consultations, you're cutting the number of days that abortion doctor can do abortions from six days to three days. And of all of the bills that we've passed, that one has... Uh, from my understanding, had the biggest impact in reducing the number of abortion facilities. Because suddenly, the reason why uh, a lot of these abortion uh, facilities closed was not because they weren't making money, it's because they couldn't get a doctor there anymore, because he now had to spend two days at the place higher up the food chain. And uh, we couldn't make a lot of noise about that when the bill was getting passed, because we wanted to kind of sneak it through, right? If you watch the movie Amazing Grace, one of their big victories came with a bill that was snuck through while the opposition was away at an opera. And there's some there's some strategy that's used. And sometimes the most powerful bills are meant to look benign. And um, sometimes, sure, it's just a gesture, right? It's flag waving. But I'm not offended by a gesture, right? If we're if we're making an effort, I'd rather have that effort made and something happen and come back next year to get more than for us to just constantly be punching each other. Like, I don't think that that's helpful. So I talked to Brad about opposing pro-life bills. What, where do you think that line gets drawn from a gradualist perspective? Um, should we be opposing... Abol- should gradualists oppose abolition but support other gradual legislation? Should they oppose gradual legislation? Should they withhold support from gradual legislation they think is not a good idea, support the gradual legislation they think is? How does how does that helpful in the overall scheme? Yeah, it's complicated uh, because it's not a linear path, right? What the next step is uh, is not clear. It's not like we're on this 12-step plan. It's like we, we're on step seven. We need to know exactly what step eight is, right? There's some disagreement as to what step eight is and what the opportunities are and what's happening in the national conversation uh, really affect things. Like right now, a real easy place to get wins is on the topic of human trafficking and women uh, being abused because of the Me Too movement. The Me Too movement is connected, right? The same kind of men who are uh, abusing women are the same kind of men that are pressuring those same women that they're abusing into getting abortions, right? And because of the Me Too movement and because of the discussion nationally that pro-lifers haven't, we didn't create that, you know, we didn't make Harvey Weinstein scandal blow up, but it's an opportunity that we can take advantage of. And so it's, it's hard for me to kind of give a general principle of like, these are the sorts of things that I would oppose and these are the sorts of things um, that I wouldn't, that, that I would support. Uh, I'm just, it, it's kind of like, being a football coach and being like, you know, what kind of plays do you want to call? I'm like, 
I want to call winning plays. <laughs> like, well, what are those winning plays? Like, I don't know. I have to look at what the other team is doing, right? If their offensive line is really weak, I'm going to do a lot of running plays. And if their defensive secondary is weak, I'm going to do a lot of passing uh, deep. Uh, and it, it changes. You know, every two years, the Texas legislature cha- uh, changes. Every two years, Congress has new faces. And what works, you know, 10 years ago may not work today and may not work 10 years from now. Um, what about when... Let's talk. ask this question from a legislator. None of us are legislators. Is it okay for a legislator to vote in favor of some abortions and still say they're pro-life? What do you mean by that? Okay, so if, if I pushed a bill that said these abortions are currently legal and I would like them to not be legal... And there's a person who says I'm pro-life, but says, I want those abortions to remain legal. I advocate for those abortions to remain legal. I say it's important that these abortions be legal. This is why these abortions need to be legal. Is that per like, cause there's a lot of, there are gradualists that will vote pro-life every time. And there are gradualists that will actually vote in favor of abortion sometimes, but then also say they're gradualists. Where do we draw the line when it comes to people that call themselves gradualists? And because I guess the question is, you and I, Thomas, we're both gradualists and we both... Wait, I thought you were an abolitionist. Well, you can't have both ways. I already said the abolitionist <laughs> won't tell me that I'm an abolitionist, right? Because I like the heartbeat bill in Georgia. So I'm clearly not in either camp. If we're both gradualists, right? I don't know that we'd ever, any of us would ever get up and vote in support of abortion going back to the rape and incest deal that you talked about like you would not craft a bill with a rape and incest exception but if that was all that was going to pass you would vote in favor of it right but you wouldn't vote in favor of putting a rape and incest exception into a bill does that make sense right so i think for this there is a clear answer and that is you ask yourself what is the net effect if the net effect is fewer dead babies it's a pro-life bill Mm -hmm. if the net effect is more dead babies it's not a pro-life bill now, what the net effect is, there's often some debate about that, right? So some people are like, this isn't going to save a single abortion, right? And the reality is we don't know what the future is. And causes and effects are vague. And this is what's challenging in the movement is that none of us have a crystal ball, right? Mm-hmm. There's no, I mean, none of the pro-life organizations I've been a part of, we had a crystal ball. We're like, man, we can see mm-hmm. in the future. And sometimes the things that you would think were very helpful like this bill has been passed in three other states. It was challenged in these three other states and defeated. And it was a huge loss and lots of money went to the pro, uh, yep. pro-choicers. So we don't think it's going to pass for us and we pass it and it doesn't get challenged. Like mm-hmm. it's not that we don't lose. It didn't get challenged. Like they overlooked it. And so that's a good thing. It, it's a good thing. But like, how could you have predicted that? Right. When the pro-abortion folks challenge every single bill and they just forget to challenge a bill. Okay. So let me be more. Uh, so like, here's the person. Cause, and I've, I think I've run like two or three campaigns against this guy named J.D. Sheffield in Gatesville, Texas, right? So the one I remember about, and this is where I think everybody can agree this guy does not, he's not pro-life, right? So uh, there's debate and there's big debate about this exception after 20 weeks, right? So after 20 weeks in Texas, there's only some children that are not threatening the life of the mother that can be aborted. And those are the ones we call them a severe fetal abnormality, right? And then there's all this discussion and debate about, would it be upheld in court? Would it not be? Is it viable? Is it not? And I don't want to get into that the whole discussion. But J.D. Sheffield is a so-called pro-life person, Republican, who gets up on the House floor and gives a speech as a doctor and says, I've been with families in these situations where they have these very sick children 
We're not sure if they're going to live. They might, if they do come out, they're going to live for only a short period of time. These are situations that must be taken care of. And that's why this exception is here in the law. Now, in this situation, you know, this is not a discussion about legal legality, whether abortionists will get their money or not or whatever. This is a individual who is a Republican who is saying these children need to be taken care of and being taken care of is specifically a reference to aborting that child at the 21st, 22nd, 23rd week. So I'm saying a, a gradualist is a gradualist, somebody who gradually wants to outlaw abortion or is a gradualist or there is there a third camp that we're not mentioning, which is somebody who thinks abortion should be legal, but would like it to not happen in a lot of different circumstances. And when, and then we, we team up with those people when we can, is there like a third group of pro-life people who do think it should be legal? Now, by the way, I don't know a single Republican who will, uh, publicly take that position, but I guess I'm asking, are there those except for JD Sheffield on the, on the floor? Um, cause I think there are other people who would even vote that way and say, well, it's not cause I wish these would happen, blah, 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 blah. So I, I guess I'm asking, does that make sense? Is is anybody who's not an abolitionist but says they're pro-life a gradualist? Or are there some that aren't gradualists? Like, they literally do believe that certain abortions should be legal, period. No matter who is on, you know, the Supreme Court. If the Supreme Court is a bunch of Samuel Litos, we still want these to be there. So, so the answer is there are a lot of factions. And if you look in history, there's nothing new under the sun. So in the anti-slavery movement, uh, there was this group of people that were super racist that were a part of the anti-slavery movement, not because they cared about African-Americans, but because they didn't want to have to compete with slave labor. They're like, this is taking away economic advantage from me. How can I compete with this guy who has free labor? And you know, I don't want to have to compete with those, and you know, insert racial epithet, right? Yep. And do you work with those people to outlaw slavery, right? And the, I would say, sure. Right. You know, if, mm -hmm. if you can get them to reduce slavery and, and those, frankly, back when it was gradualist and they were making victories, they were working with those folks. Right. It, what, there was no motives checks like only the pure of heart can enter. It's like, no, if you're helping us bring an end to slavery, we don't care what your motives are. And the abolition movement, um, as a contrast, was very passionate about pure motives and pure people. And, oh, if you have women in your organization, you can't be a part of our organization. And that. Um, policing of motives really hijacked the movement. And, you know, if somebody wants to have fewer dead babies, I'm happy to work with them to have fewer dead babies. Yeah. And I, I guess I'm not saying is the question isn't, do you work comes out there are Democrats that will oftentimes side with us. And, and there were, I don't know, a dozen or 60 some Democrats that voted against infanticide and things like that. Great steps, right? It's like, Hey, when we agree on life, let's agree. But the question is, I guess we're probably not mentioning there probably is a third group of people that will vote in opposition to abortion at times, but also do fundamentally believe that abortion not only is a unfortunate reality, but is a reality that they do believe should exist, right? I mean, there's probably a group of people that think this should happen. I don't want it to happen. I might not decide it kind of that level. Yeah, I, I definitely believe that there's those kinds of folks. I think there was more back in the day as we've been making gains in the arena of ideas, it's harder for those people yep. to kind of poke their heads up and say, uh, but yeah, there's a whole continuum of how pro-life somebody is. Mm -hmm. And there's a whole continuum of uh, what they see in terms of personhood. 
uh, and what they see as the science. Because some of it's a scientific discussion, right? Like, while in many ways we use moral arguments, we're also appealing to science to show, hey, look at this sonogram. This baby has a face and a nose. And, you, you know, sure, you could argue from Scripture, right? John the Baptist is filled with the Holy Spirit while in the womb, right? But if somebody's not a Christian, that argument's not going to work for with them. But they may be convinced with a sonogram image. So uh, y'all have been very generous with your time. There's one other point that I wanted to bring up. I remembered this as we're having a conversation. So uh, one thing that got said, so there's this whole discussion around uh, criminalizing the mother or not, right? And I know there's a big group of people, state laws for a long time in Texas have not criminalized the mother. Um, just to, I mean, I think Thomas and I would probably just to kind of clearly delineate this, I think Thomas and I probably would say that laws, as long as they're pro-life laws that are continuing the march and advancement, if they remove the mother from criminal liability, I'm fine with that. Thomas might prefer it. Uh, Brad, y'all took a position and Representative Tenderholt took a position. Um, and I support, you know, Tony's position to, t to take this, which was that we want equal treatment under the law. Right. So we're not we're not trying to criminalize one person over the other. We just don't want anybody not criminalized when everybody's criminalized after they're born. Um, there was a statement made and this is my first question. And then I want to get to your position on criminalizing the mother, Brad, and then your thoughts on his position, Thomas, and, and or your position. OK, but one thing that really disturbed me um, and this is not anything anybody that I think y'all are affiliated with. I think it was Kylene Wright said this, but I know a couple other people said that. It is not pro-life to criminalize the mother. I thought this was a very power, very strong and bold statement, which was, you know, that Tony Tinderholt's legislation to abolish abortion was not pro-life uh, because it criminalized the mother. So basically that part of the bill was distinctly not a pro-life position. And that to me is a very deceived perspective. Going back to the fact that I'm, I am completely okay if a bill doesn't criminalize the mother. Okay. So that's my position. But also I think it's almost impossible to say it's kind of like the slavery deal, right? To say that an unborn child should be treated the exact same as a born child is not a pro-life position. Just seems to me to be a gradualist that has completely lost perspective, right? Like you don't even think it's pro-life to say that the unborn Anybody exempted from killing an unborn child should also be exempted from killing a born child. Like, you know, they're the same. How is it not pro-life? So I guess my question to both of you, I know Brad's position, right? Because Brad would say, of course, he disagrees that it is pro-life to not have an exception. But Thomas, that was something where even as a, as a gradualist, that really offended me that somebody went so far as to say, instead of I don't agree and I personally think it's better for pro-lifers to exempt mothers saying it is not pro-life to not exempt mothers. Does that make sense? Yeah, so this is uh, one of the areas where pro-lifers are very split, and it's the issue of the death penalty. And, and by and, the way, real Okay, yeah, so I know and, and this, and I, I, So I'm not familiar with what Kylene Wright yeah, wrote, and, and, and but in general... And you can take her name out of it. Let's assume it was the... Somebody, well, well, let's just say it was criminalizing. Yeah. Somebody else who said it. So in um, Texas Penal Code, if you kill a baby, you are... Uh, eligible for the death penalty, right? So if you just shoot a random person, you're not eligible. There's certain things that escalate and it let me, to becoming a death penalty eligible, and killing a baby is one of those Can things. I ask a question? Do you think that should be the law? Uh, sh whether a or not baby. we should have the death penalty? No, not, not I'm not talking about Texas? abortion right now. I'm saying for you personally, do you think that if you kill a baby, 
you should be able to get the death. I don't want to get into a whole death penalty discussion, but I'm just asking. Yeah, I feel like this is opening, this is, opening up know, a can of worms. I know, let's not go on into this. that deal. If, if you're opposed to the death penalty, so, so, you can so say so that too. Do you but not want to open the can of worms or do you do want to open I'm the can of worms? I'm not going to let it go into a, into a death <laughs> so, penalty so discussion. I, I will say this. The Catholic Church, which is where most of the pro-life money and energy comes from, has been against the death penalty for 1,500 years, mm-hmm. maybe from the beginning. And anytime you... In almost all pro-life groups, avoid this conflict by by saying so we're here to protect I, innocent. The human reason life. I'm asking this question, Thomas, I want to get to the bottom because I don't think this is a death penalty issue, and I want to kind of take the death penalty off because here's here's my reason for it. Okay, so let's just say for a second that you were against the death penalty. Okay, so would you not? believe that any of the existing crimes that the that makes people eligible for the death penalty should they should be exempted from those until we get rid of the death penalty or should those laws stand does that make sense so i don't want that's why i'm trying to not go into the death penalty do you think that it should be a full crime let's say you want to get rid of the death penalty it should and then a woman can get life in prison should she be able to get life in prison for killing a one year old child if we got rid of let's take the death penalty off so you're asking me if i think that murder is wrong okay so i don't think that the disagreement on criminalizing the mother has to do with the death penalty my reason being and you can disagree with me my reason being that most people who want to make exceptions for the mother don't oppose all the existing crimes on the book for people that send them potentially to the death penalty does that make sense So I don't think it's a death penalty issue because otherwise they'd say in order to be pro-life, we have to literally get rid of all these crimes, right? Um, That's what I'm trying to get at. Yeah, so my understanding of the original um, pro-life laws uh, that were passed in the 1700s, late 1700s, early 1800s, is that uh, the mother was never criminalized. It was the father that was criminalized in those laws. And that makes more sense uh, to me because it seems like in many cases, uh, the woman is being pressured into an abortion. If you mm-hmm. talk with post-abortive yep. women, they feel like they don't have any choice, which is kind of the irony of the pro-choice movement. They don't feel like they have any choice. But it, it's the same concept um, of some of a woman's being trafficked, mm-hmm. right? She's a, technically a prostitute, right? So you put her in jail. It's like, well, there's a perspective, and this is the growing perspective, especially amongst the church, to see her as a victim, right? She's being victimized mm-hmm. by all of these men in her life she calls out for help to the police and what do they do they put her in jail and they turn her into yet another victim and it's like how is that helping and prostitution how is that helping rescue these women uh, from trafficking and so i don't see that like i realize people want to like thump their chest and be like i'm so moral i'm willing to punish these people no and <clears throat> so so let me let me again i'm saying i think that even people who support criminalizing the mother come from various different perspectives and people who think that we should have exceptions come from various different perspectives. My point is I thought, and you didn't say this, so I'm not putting this on you. I'm saying I thought the statement that to say that an unborn child deserves equal treatment under the law, which inherently means because that there are no exceptions for somebody who ends the life of a one week old child in order to give pure equal treatment and, and, understand that I'm okay with the mother exception. So I'm, I'm okay with taking that step and saying that's a more important step. But I think the statement that could, could we at least agree that for somebody to take the position of equal treatment is not a, I guess not, I don't know how you double negative, a non pro-life perspective, or do you think that it is not pro-life to say that the unborn child 
should be treated the same as a born child because those same, and this is the same argument we have when, when we debate this with college students and stuff, right? Because any situation you give me about victimhood and confused and blah, blah, blah can be cast onto somebody with a child, right? So meaning confused, pressured, whatever, this wasn't something I wanted. He wanted it. I was just thrown into this mix and I had no control over it, blah, blah, blah. So I'm not even asking you to take that position. I'm saying if somebody says that equal treatment is not pro-life, I feel like that's a very inaccurate statement. And I don't believe that equal treatment's necessary. Does that make sense? Okay, so what's your point? I'm saying, can we agree that <laughs> the position of equal treatment, can we agree that the position of equal treatment is a pro-life position that some pro-lifers do not support? Or, or would you take exception to that statement? So there's a huge piece of the pro-life movement that's about moral posturing, right? Who can be the most righteous? And that's yeah. and and I don't care about that part. I, what I care about is fewer dead babies. And there's all of this like, oh, we got to stand on principle, and we like got to be intellectually consistent. And I'm like, that's great. I want fewer dead babies. And you know, are we going to have fewer dead babies next year than this year? And we we can get really caught up in the word salad and all of these things, but I'm a very practical person and I just want fewer dead babies. And yeah. ultimately I would love to see no dead babies, but it, I can't get to no dead babies tomorrow, but I can maybe get to fewer dead babies tomorrow. And that's why I support the pro-life organizations that I do and work in all these different places. Cause I don't feel like the law, and, and this is really important uh, cause I feel like, Oh, pro-life groups are moving slow because they're greedy and they don't want to end abortion cause then they'll go away. It's like, no, if we ended abortion and, and, and tomorrow, we'd wanna, have to stay around. I don't want to get into all that. My point is, I wanted to have a, a quick discussion and then we'll go into closing statements. I want to have a quick discussion about, because this is a point of contention and discussion within pro-lifers, is the criminalizing, uh, is equal treatment versus writing in an exception for women. Is the, I, what I'm saying is, is that a position which um, makes one pro-life or not pro-life or is that just different perspectives within the pro-life community? So I haven't thought through this. So, yeah, and that's okay. Uh, and, I mean, but, we don't have to. But I will say I, that criminalizing. I'm to catch you off guard on this like, one yeah, yeah. issue. But criminalizing the mother is super toxic in terms of its effect. It always leads to immediate defeats. Mm -hmm. There's no public demand for this. You know, uh, Trump talked about criminalizing the mother, and it was this huge loss for the pro-life movement. And while it may make us feel very, you know, some people feel very moral to be like, man, we're going to punish these women, we're going to execute mm -hmm. them or put them in jail for a million years or whatever. And that makes them feel very righteous. Uh, I don't think it helps save babies. In fact, I think it does just the opposite. I think it leads to defeats and it causes us to lose. And it's the exact same thing that the abolitionists did actually uh, in the 1830s, 1840s. One of the things that they did, they, th they thought at the time was super effective is that they basically carpet bombed the South with letters telling Southerners how evil they were for slavery. And the result of that was just to solidify the South as a pro-slavery position. Because when you get a letter from some meddling Yankee telling you what an evil person you are, that doesn't make you repent. It makes you, oh, you are a bleep Yankee, right? And you want to stick it to him. I'm like, I'm going to kill you if I get the chance. And so that's that's doesn't save babies. It, it makes us feel righteous, but it doesn't save babies. Um, Brad, why don't we talk about the, yeah. the talk about the mother, talk about yeah. the mother deal. And then what we're going to do is Thomas will have kind of a closing statement. You'll have a closing statement and we'll, and thank you both for your time again. Yeah. Right, no, thanks ahead. for having me on. Um, both of us, you know, I mean, as far as this, I call it equal protection. Um, it's not about 
who gets prosecuted. It's about that the same laws that exist to protect born people should be applied to protect people who are not yet born. That's really what it's about. You know, it's not a question of uh, prosecuting women, first of all, uh, because women are already subject to prosecution for uh, for killing preborn children. Um, you know, sometimes we say, you know, well, you know, people are too indoctrinated. They don't know that it's a preborn child. Well, then why is it illegal already for a man to kill the preborn child? Uh, well, you know, I don't know. Well, but but women, they're too indoctrinated. They don't believe it's a preborn child. Well, actually, it's already illegal. It's already murder for a woman to kill a preborn child as well, if it's somebody else's preborn child. So if they're too indoctrinated, then why are they prosecuted for that but not for this? Um, no, it's only a woman with regard to her own child that we say, well, she's too indoctrinated to know what she's doing. But wait a second, just a few minutes ago, before she was pregnant, she she could have been culpable, but now she's pregnant and she's not. You know, so we have to be consistent. If we're saying that they're too indoctrinated, you know, then we have to be consistent in that because there's clearly, clearly people who are subject to that law who, you know, we're saying they're not too indoctrinated. Um, you know, another thing, I, I agree that historically it has not been the, our, the position in our laws that uh, mothers are subject to prosecution for the death of the, or for the abortion of their own child. Um, but that was actually, that, that's part of the problem. That's actually what we believe ultimately led to Roe versus Wade. And it's not just our opinion on that, but um, it was the opinion of the court that actually said that, you know, because we, and you can even go listen to the oral arguments. And the position of uh, Sarah Weddington, who was arguing on, you know, arguing on behalf of Roe and arguing to get rid of abortion laws, she was in there saying, you know, if Texas really believes that this is a a person, constitutional person, then why are there exceptions for the mother? Why is the law? Why are the penalties different? And the court went with that. And in the actual Roe versus Wade opinion, the court actually even says that. They say Texas faces a dilemma here. They're being inconsistent. And so, you know, they can't talk out of both sides of their mouth. You can't say this is a person, but then treat them differently. Kind of the same way, we, you know, with I read earlier the 1857 law regarding slaves and people, free people of color. Um, you know, you can't say they're a person, but then treat them differently than everybody else. That doesn't work. Um, that's what we were doing, and that's why we lost Roe versus Wade, and that's why we've lost ever since Roe versus Wade because we have been internally inconsistent. And the way you know, when you dig a hole, you don't keep digging, right? You get out of the hole. We we got into it by being inconsistent. The way we get out of it, you know, we got into it by being inconsistent. We get out of it by being consistent, right? And and so the laws that apply to born people need to apply to preborn people. Now, are any of us saying that every single woman who gets an abortion should get the death penalty, or should even be prosecuted at all. No, we're not. There are plenty of people who are involved with homicides that are either not prosecuted, or they're given immunity, or they make some kind of deal, or they testify against someone else. Um, all we're saying, and, and that's not the role of the legislature, right? The role of the legislature is to write laws that apply equally to everybody without discriminating, right? Because we're all equal under the law. We all say that, but do we live it? And in this area, we're not living it. Uh, we're not being treated equal under the law before we're born. After we're born, okay, then you're equal. But before you're born, you're not. Um, so that's why we need to stop that. You know, that's what the role of the legislature is. So that from there, if, if you pass a law that's, that's equal, 
then it's up to law enforcement who they're going to investigate, who they're going to arrest. It's up to prosecutors who they're going to prosecute, what they're going to prosecute them for. Are they going to take it to a grand jury? Are they going to give that person, that mother in this instance, immunity to testify against the abortionist? Probably they are. You know, is is the judge or the jury, are they going to convict this person? What are they going to convict them of? What are the, then at the next phase, what is the penalty going to be? Um, do I believe that any woman, you know, who's getting an abortion is going to um, get the death penalty? No, I don't think so. I don't see that ever happening. Um, but should the law apply equally to everybody? Yeah. And if those laws are currently applied born people, I believe that they should apply equally to people before they're born. And let's let the rest of our justice system figure out who's a victim, who's not. And that's the other thing with this, with, with the bill, uh, with our, with the bill that, um, you know, that we support. And that is, Hey, women who really are victims who are truly are in under duress, right? They have a gun to their head. Basically they're being forced to do something against their will. The, the law makes, you know, the bill and the law makes provision for that and says, no, 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 you can't prosecute them or women who really don't know what they're doing. That's called mistake of fact in our law. And that's already in the law. So that doesn't need to be in the bill. It's women who really don't know what they're doing. They're already exempted from prosecution. And I support that. Or they're, they're exempted from conviction. Um, and I support that. That's, that's in the bill. So, but for every other case, those need to be able to be considered on a case-by-case basis instead of doing what we're doing now, which I believe is insulting to women. I believe it's pretty. If I were a woman, I'd be pretty insulted by it. And I've talked to women who are pretty insulted by it. Um, and that is we're, we're saying every woman, every woman who gets pregnant, who gets an abortion is to something ignorant, stupid, foolish, whatever, but is too, is, is not, uh, liable for the consequences of their own actions. Um, and I think that's pretty insulting. Uh, it, it either says that they're too weak to say that every single woman is being forced into an abortion, which is just garbage, right? Go, go look at the studies. Go look at the surveys. You know, that's garbage. Um, most of them, they, some of them say, yes, I was pressured. But most of them have economic reasons or not, all kind of other reasons for why they're getting an abortion. To say that all of them are forced into abortion is wrong. To say that some are victims, yes, that's absolutely true. Some are. But most are not. You know, they don't call it, the other side doesn't call it pro-choice, because everybody's being forced into it. No, most of them are making a conscious choice. Now, are they doing it under pressure? Yes. Every sin is committed under pressure. Every crime is committed under pressure. But that doesn't mean that everybody should be universally exempted from the law just because they felt some temptation or they felt some pressure. No, the law should apply equally to everybody. And it would also help to, because we need to provide pressure the other way. Um, and that's why a lot of the post-abortive women I've talked to have actually said, I wish women, I wish I had been subject to prosecution because then I never would have done this. I never would have killed my baby if I knew that, that I could go to jail or that anything could happen to me. Um, that, would have, that would have been what kept me from doing it. And that's why when we look around now and we look at around all the, all the women who are getting abortions today and we say, well, these women shouldn't, should, they shouldn't go to jail. They shouldn't be prosecuted. Um, you know, th- that's not the world we would live in if this bill passed. You know, all of these law-abiding women who aren't who are getting abortions today, if if it was outlawed, they would not be getting them tomorrow, right? They wouldn't be getting them. Um, and so that's why it's it's difficult to envision a future where abortion were completely outlawed. Um, but it would be one in which most abortions wouldn't be happening in the first place. Um, 
So, Thomas, I want to. I know we said we were going to go to kind of closing statements, but I do think you should at least have an opportunity to kind of give your perspective on that, and then we'll kind of go into closing statements from there. Uh, yeah. So, hearing you talk has only enforced my position that I don't think that abortion should be criminalized because I think that that just becomes so distasteful that it alienates uh, people of goodwill against us, and I, I I just don't think it's a good idea. And and the righteous chest thumping, I don't think anybody cares about that, and I don't care about that. And I don't either. I mean, it, that's not what it's about. It's not about chest thumping or anything like that. And nobody, none of us care, you know, whether we get any credit or, or, as well. But what I do care about is um, that we're consistent, that our laws are consistent, because by being inconsistent is what got us here, and um, we need to stop being inconsistent. Um, Thomas, why don't you kind of give a couple minutes closing and then we'll give Brad the same. Okay. So once upon a time, there was a tortoise and a hare. And they uh, went to have a race. And the hare, the the rabbit, was very dedicated and very passionate about getting to uh, the finish line. And so he sprinted off and ran as fast as he could. But before he got to the finish line, he got tired. And he was so far ahead of the tortoise that he decided to take a nap and while he was sleeping the tortoise slowly and steadily step by step crossed the finish line ahead of time and i remember watching a youtube video that had a rabbit and a turtle racing each other and it actually is how it works if you have a rabbit and a turtle race the turtle wins because the turtle is looking for slow and steady progress every year fewer dead babies uh, is the slow and steady path and it it's not it, and what makes it a pro-life uh, path is that it's the ultimate path to victory the turtle in the long run, is the one that wins the race. And that's why I believe in gradualism. Brad? Yeah, well, I believe that Roe versus Wade is unconstitutional. You know, we, all of us here want to see the Supreme Court overturn Roe versus Wade. And why is that? Because it's unconstitutional. Well, if it's unconstitutional, why are we following it? You know, why, why do we continue to follow it and continue to write laws that seek to comply with it? Um, you know, that's what we should stop doing. Um, you know, we've talked about some of the history of abolitionism. You know, William Wilberforce said, he said that our chief opponents of abolition are gradualists. Uh, he said that that was the chief opponent of the abolition that he sought. And, um, and even you mentioned the movie Amazing Grace. That was the, we even saw it in that movie. They say, look, it should be ab- abolished gradually. And that's what he opposed over and over again. And that's, that's certainly, uh, I believe that the William Wilberforce method is uh, what what won the day and what we should have done. Um, you know, well, I, I do believe in equal protection, and uh, that's because I believe in the golden rule. And the golden rule is, how would I want to be treated? How would I want to be treated? Well, I would want to be treated equally with everybody else. Before I was born, I want to be treated equally with everybody else. And so that's how I believe that we should treat people before they're born uh, equal with everybody else and um, and that's what that that's what the bills of abolition are about they are about um, standing on the true rule of law and that is the Constitution and um, and then providing equal protection not just because it's the right thing to do but also because it's it's the legally most logical thing to do and it's why we lost Roe versus Wade Thomas, uh, if somebody wants to find out more about you, where do they go? And thomasumstat.com, uh, which 
Hopefully you'll put a link in the show notes because it's a little hard to spell. But if you just start typing Thomas Umstead into Google, it'll get you to the it'll right place. It'll get you there yeah. eventually. Brad, where do people find out more about you or, or abolition? Yeah, they can go to abolishabortiontx.org or go to Facebook slash abolishabortiontexas. I want to thank all of our listeners. I know it's been a long discussion and hopefully um, a profitable one. You know, we have got to have a culture of life in our state and we're in desperate need of more and more individuals engaging in both the cultural battles and the political battles, the policy battles and the battles in front of abortion clinics who are willing to advocate on behalf of the unborn. We need people on college campuses. We need people in the church urging their pastors to step up and speak boldly when it comes to the value of human life and why the church should be speaking out for them more than any other um, group of individuals across our nation. And so I would just encourage each and every one of you to evaluate your lives and uh, think about where you could step up. Is it a conversation with your pastor about having a pro-life Sunday and an opportunity to have a sermon on the importance of abortion and the church's role in it? Is it to engage with your local officials and ensure that they are indeed voting pro-life? And if they're not doing your best to get them out of office, is it to donate to crisis pregnancy centers and uh, pro-life organizations that are doing battle on your behalf? Um, Please just consider what you're doing. I can guarantee you it's not enough. And um, we can all look for ways to continue to engage in that battle as much as possible. So thank you, Thomas. Thank you, Brad, for joining me today. And uh, thank you to our listeners. God bless. I'm really grateful for Thomas and Brad for coming on the show and discussing um, this issue and these issues with us. Um, You know, guys, I do think it's incredibly important for us to realize that um, a majority of legislators in Texas... Um, in the Texas House, I don't think are pro-life. And, you know, you might think that that is a strong, bold, uh, controversial statement, but I I think that it's kind of unquestionable. In fact, in my conversations with most uh, legislators, I think they would admit that um, if pro-life is defined by somebody who actually wants to see abortion ended, um, be they a gradualist or an abolitionist, the reality is that we've got Plenty of Republicans in the legislature who actually want abortions to remain legal in some form and do believe that um, some of them should occur, some even in the third trimester. And so um, we need to wake up. We need pro-lifers all across the state to engage further in the process. We need stronger, more convicted pro-life advocates to run for office at every level. And so uh, just thank you for engaging. If you're still listening to this, it means you sat through an hour, hour and a half long conversation. And so you clearly care enough um, to be engaged in this conversation. And for that, I'm very grateful. If you can, please consider uh, subscribing to our podcast. Um, It just means that our content will get to you on a weekly basis. If you go to lukemacias.com, you can subscribe to our email alerts. Um, Please leave a review on our podcast and just let people know what you learned and and uh, if this is somewhere that you find informative for you as a Texan to know what's going on, we would appreciate that and it will help our podcast continue to grow. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to The Luke Messiah Show. If you value this content and want our message to spread, please consider three of the following steps. One, subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you're listening to us on and leave us a review. Two, visit lukemacias.com and sign up for our email alerts. And three, follow Raz and I on Twitter and visit my Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash Luke 
Texas. Again, that's facebook.com forward slash Luke Macias, Texas. Thank you so much and God bless.